Welcome to Light Trees and News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. I'm joined today by Meredith. Good morning. Good morning. And I have to tell everyone, you should be deeply grateful we have an episode at all, because I didn't think I was going to make it today. Moments before I was uh, scheduled to call you, Meredith, my laptop just turned off, which is... (gasps) always a bone chilling moment where it's not one of those moments where you're like, Oh yeah. You know, like, um, the battery was low or it's installing an update. There was just like no explanation. Just shut the fuck off. And I was like, cool. That has, that has happened to me. And I wondered, Oh, is it, is it getting revenge on me in some way? Like, did I accidentally spill three drops of water on it two days ago and it seeped into the wrong processor or, or I have like 30 tabs open and it's like, bitch, you got to relax. We're going mm-hmm. on a little mental vacation. Yeah. It's also like for a Mac. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. I'm in the Mac cult. Don't message me. I know it's stupid. Um, for a Mac laptop, it is very old. So I'm very much aware that I'm like on extremely borrowed time at this point. But you know what? We're on a budget. We're going to stretch it out. But you know what? This is a long-winded way of saying I so appreciate all of the support um, from listeners like you who contribute five, ten, dare I say it, $50 a month, either at my Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny, or just your good old-fashioned lighttreason.news, where you can also... Smash the donate button over there if you're like, Allison, I don't need your fucking perks. Um, But speaking of my Patreon, I did want to read some of the uh, listener messages we got over there. But before we get to any of that, everybody, Meredith, it's been one year since lockdown. And I feel like we should say something at the top of the show about it. So I, I wanted to know what was your what is let me rephrase your last normal memory? Uh, my last normal memory was uh, was March 10th. So the day before everything really went bonkers. I was uh, working on, we were supposed to tape the first episode of the new cycle of Patriot Act. And I was really excited because it was an episode I had like shepherded from you know, a baby idea in my head all the way to taping. I was really excited. I had gone to Boston because it was about legal weed. So we interviewed these two guys who opened up a, you know, they're the first people of color to open up a weed, like a legal marijuana, like cannabis business on the East Coast. And also the first people in Massachusetts to get through the equity program. I was so psyched. And then I gave a hug to my best work bud went home and had a glass of wine at my local wine bar. And I said, Oh man, this is so weird, but it's so exciting. There's so much stuff about to happen. I woke up, went to work the next day and then promptly discovered that one of my friends was very concerned, was very sick and very concerned that she had COVID. So I, I remember you home. texting me during all of this. Like, yeah, That was the thing, like, we, because we obviously didn't know the full scope of what was happening, you would get, like, these pieces of information from people where it's just, like, they're sending us all home. We don't know what's happening. Yeah. 
And that was the that was the day that people at John Oliver and at CBS News all ended up having cases. And so they all went home and uh, I just was, yeah, I was really, I was freaked out and I didn't know if I was being crazy and overly cautious. And I never went back to that office and it was two more days before they sent everybody else home. And yeah, it's still mine. Home. Yeah. It was my fucking birthday. We all were at a bar. Um, a great bar in Brooklyn, uh, Dynaco. And yeah, it was just a, a, a big group. And we were all like, it. this was March 5th or 6th. So it's still like not confirmed cases, like still very much like, is this even going to be a big deal? Oh, if we have to shut down, it'll just be a couple weeks, stuff like that. So we were all like doing it up, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I went back recently and I was looking at my text messages and my calendar and stuff. And it's so fucking funny, guys. Like, go back a year and just see what was in your little calendar. Look at all of your little plans. It's adorable. Yeah. But I had all of these scheduled. Like, we were supposed to do a sketch show at UCB. We had gotten approved to, um, or I shouldn't say approved. We had just gotten notes from the artistic director about a sketch show that we had put up. So we were about to do the show again, having taken those notes into consideration. And we mm -hmm. had, like, made some changes to the show and, and whatnot. So we were getting ready. We had just done like a midnight tech rehearsal after fucking Herald night. So I was exhausted. And oh, there's one last photo of me and my friend Angela sitting on stage. And in the show, we play two characters who die. So behind us on the huge screen on stage are our photos. And it says, rest in peace. <laughs> and that's the last photo of me at UCB. And it's very fitting, I feel like, especially immediately uh, preceding a pandemic. Seriously? So, yeah, very strange. Very strange to share an anniversary of a, a birthday and the beginning of my own personal lockdown. Yeah, journey. I think I actually w couldn't go to your birthday because I had to go to Boston for that. Yes. Field shoot. So yeah, yeah. I was like, why was I not there? And I did, I did separate things too. Like I, I was looking at my calendar and I had gone to birdies with Rachel and Chloe and I, Chloe was also at Dynaco, I believe because we were roommates at the time. Um, but yeah, I think, I think you and I probably like hung out separately. I, I can't so. remember for the life of me, or maybe we didn't even get a chance because everything went into <laughs> lockdown, but yeah, I un guys, I understand that's like somewhat of a morbid question, but also I'm curious. What is your last normal memory? Hashtag light trees and pod. It's also just interesting because it makes you look back on what your old priorities were. Because like the idea of ever returning to my level of craziness, like how busy I was a year ago, exhausts me. And I'm just like, I don't know how I did that. I don't know if I can ever do it again. I don't know if I should ever do it again. I am, I think I'm physically incapable of going back. I mean, to the point that I left New York City because I thought, like, I just don't think I want to ramp back up again. Dude, I, I have to tell you, I think you and your ilk are on to something because... I, maybe this will be good. Maybe this will force us to like reject capitalism faster because I'm just like, 
it will kill me if I try to go back to that pace. Like that is fucking crazy. Yeah. And the idea of adding back into your daily schedule commuting if somebody tries to ask you to do that oh my god I I might try to negotiate with the place I'm working at now to stay at least partial work from home because here's another thing another fun thing about living in a city I get sick all the time when I'm on like public transportation or around a ton of people you know like that's just what happens when you're around people all the time so I'm not looking forward to that I haven't like gotten seriously (laughs) sick in like a year since I'm pretty sure I had COVID in March But since then, no colds, like nothing. It's like miraculous. But then, of course, it brings up the question, then why live in a city? (laughs) Why are you paying like through the nose for rent if you're not going to enjoy the amenities? So I don't know. You know what it is, too? I think I have developed, and I'm not saying this flippantly, so please, please, please don't come at me on Twitter. I think I have developed a mild form of agoraphobia. And I think I've just mentally freaked myself out to the point where I'm like, I can't, I can't leave the apartment. I can't get on a subway and I'll just do it and I'll be fine. But the idea of it is frightening to me right now. Yeah. There's a lot of mental blocks. I've, I've been feeling that too. Things that I want or wish could happen. And it just feels something about getting it, actually getting to that point. There's a chasm there now that needs to be bridged. And I don't know that any of us have actually started building that. I imagine it'll be a very big thing for therapists in the next several months to have to think through that oh stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah. I got to go back to therapy. Okay. Yeah. I absolutely have to move on. We have <laughs> a message from Brian. Uh, and Brian has a recommendation. I've completely by accident managed to game YouTube's algorithm such that my friend page is largely positive content. Wow. My gateway down this rabbit hole that I've nicknamed wholesome tube was a channel called Jessica Kelgren Fozard hosted by a woman named funnily enough, Jessica Kelgren Frozard. Her channel's primary focus is on queer history and disabled history and the places where those two overlap since she herself is a lesbian with a disability. While the things she talks about can sometimes go into dark places, she's very good about trigger warnings. Um, Hi, Rosie. I hear Rosie. (laughs) Also, from time to time, her wife, Claudia, and their dogs, Walter and Tilly, will show up. Wow, Rosie knew there were dogs in this message and was like, get to the good stuff. It is all exactly as adorable as it sounds. As an aside, I can't remember if I actually sent Charles her free Britney video or if I just thought about doing it. Brian, I can't answer that for you. You either did send it to Charles or did not. I have no way of knowing that. Maybe just send it to Charles again because I'm sure he would be into that. So thank you for that recommendation. I love the idea of Wholesome Tube and trying to game YouTube's algorithm to make it non-evil is very (laughs) funny to me. It also seems like the kind of thing that is the perfect quarantine project because it would take forever. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. Like, that would be a job, you know, just trying to make YouTube non-evil. But, Brian, you did it. Congratulations. So I remember why people were messaging. I asked specifically what they were doing at the time to, like, preserve their sanity because we were coming up on the one-year anniversary of lockdown. So Evan wrote in and said, D&D. D&D is a very popular answer right now. 
I'm playing a ton of D&D, and it's been a wonderfully liberating way to reconnect with people. Evan, I love that. Um, obviously, D&D is especially big in like the improv community because it's storytelling and improvising. And uh, funny people are good at storytelling. So I have a bunch of friends who run D&D games in their like little quarantine pod mm-hmm. of people that they, they trust to be negative. So yeah, tons of people are doing it right now. I think it's awesome. I'm glad you have a little community. Israel writes in, I recently rewatched Penny Dreadful and have to say I love Ava Green's performance so much. The whole show is a roller coaster of feeling horror at the monstrous acts of the character who we are then immediately invited to feel something for. I love the show, but I hate how much like watching politicians this is. Oh, that's interesting. I've never seen Petty Dreadful. Have you? I have. And I can vouch for Eva Green's perfection. She was typecast as the crazy spooky bitch, but she really embraces it in a way. I'm sorry. Crazy spooky, sexy bitch. Yes. Uh, Yeah, she has been perfection. And she is... Genuinely great. There's a lot of stuff that's really fun, especially in the first season. It does go completely off the rails, but and that's like True Blood, man. True Blood had so much potential, and then I it just got to a point where I was like, I cannot. There's the cast is so good though, and there's I mean between Eva Green and Billy Piper, damn, they are these fantastic characters. They get. I got it. You know what? I'm going to put it on my list because I've really recommended so much and it is extremely in my lane that I'm like, I just got to get into it. Um, As a, as a person of the same generation as me, the presence of Josh Hartnett will make you kind of cringe because you think, yeah, I remember the faculty, but it turns out I you know was who I remember from the faculty? I'm sorry. You know who I remember from the faculty? Mr. John Stewart. And that's yep. it. <laughs> um, well, no, I mean, but it was also Elijah Wood and Clea Duvall were in it too. So I'm sorry, who? Mr. John Stewart. I truly <laughs> forgot they were in that movie. <laughs> I don't know why. I just remember the scene where remember he rips off the blade of the paper cutter. Yep. That's all I remember from that movie. Isn't that wild? That is kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. My brain's weird. It's broken. Um, And then finally, Anna wrote in with a ghost story. Thank you so much, Anna. They write, I used to work at a hospital. I fully didn't expect to be haunted since it was built fairly recently. However, the physical therapy gym was built over a demolished bar. Apparently, every day at around what would have been happy hour, the gym would smell like cigarette smoke. Smoking wasn't allowed anywhere on hospital grounds. Uh-oh, you haunted. Anna, bad news. Um, oh, you said I used to work at the hospital, so not bad news for you. Bad news for anybody who still works at that hospital. You got ghost. And I'm sorry to tell you, but you got ghost and that ghost is smoking a cigarette every day during happy hour because you built over their fucking bar. 
Oh, those, they're saying, excuse me, I would like some, you know, I'd like some service. No, I do not need you to intubate me for the lung cancer that eventually killed me. (laughs) Right. It was a twofer for them. They hung out at the bar and then they were also a patient who died in the hospital from lung cancer. Yeah. What if like in their dimension, they're just standing at an empty bar like, hello, hello. Oh, that would be terrible. Serve them a dang drink. Come on. I know you're a hospital, but pour one out for the ghost. So, Meredith, you and I have something very important to talk about. Very important. Actually, we have several things to talk about. Guys, listen, there's a lot going on in the world. I don't know why I keep prefacing this, because anytime I've been like, what if we were just a pop culture show? People are so sweet and supportive. I just riddled with Catholic guilt all the time. And anytime I'm venting, I'm not talking at anyone specifically. It's me talking to the voice in my head. Just to clarify, you've all been sweet and supportive and I love you very much. I am a nightmare of a human being and my thoughts are very toxic. So FYI, that's who you're dealing with. If you're a new listener, I apologize. So There had been like rumblings when all of the Army Hammer stuff came out that there was this like big piece that was going to come out soon and it was going to be very damning and there was going to be all sorts of revelations in it. And I think it is the Vanity Fair piece that just came out, unless another one is in the works and it's about to drop. But I think it's the Vanity Fair piece. I think so. It wouldn't have gotten that level of attention if it were anything other than Vanity Fair. Yeah, I agree. I think this is it. And to be fair, I got very annoyed because immediately there was this response that was like, but we know all of this already. First of all, no, we didn't. There is new stuff in there, like new text messages. There are testimonials from some of his victims that we haven't heard before. So, like, please don't erase all of that shit because there is new original reporting in it. And and I don't think you can underestimate excuse me, the context that this, that adding, you know, adding that in can do if you're trying to discuss something like this, because the only way, you know, you can't break it down to something as simple as this is kink shaming or this guy's a monster, or this is, you know, you know, if you actually run through it, creating that timeline adds something into, oh, okay, like this person is fucked up. And the history here is useful for that. Does not excuse it, but, you know, let's, can we just start off with the sex throne? Oh my God. Okay. So, <laughs> well, let's, let's rewind just briefly because you addressed something that was my main concern when I was reading it and you and I were texting, which was, I was very concerned that this was going to be an overly, <clears throat> excuse me, sympathetic profile about Army Hammer that was like, look at this poor man born into this, you know, irreparably fucked up family. It's not his fault. He can't be held accountable for any of his actions, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what the profile is at all. The profile is just basically like, as you said, here's some very pertinent information. He does come from this long line of extremely fucked up rich people, but ultimately he's responsible for his own actions and he a bad man. Mm-hmm. So that was great. I was like, good. He is 100% culpable for his actions. Uh, they are his fault. I don't care. You have daddy issues. But yeah, let's talk about the sex throne. Um, it belonged to his father, correct, Michael? I believe so, yeah. So Michael, oh, this man, 
Um, there is a lot, like a long, long history. And by the way, I highly recommend everybody read the the profile in its entirety. Um, of course, trigger warnings of, you know, sexual abuse, um, you know, imbalance and power dynamics, all of that stuff. Y'all know the gist by now that, you know, if, if there are certain things that trigger you in the Army Hammer story, maybe don't read the profile. But if you're like, I really want the nitty gritty details about like what the fuck is going on in the Hammer family and like the history of it. And also at this point, there's been so many victims coming forward. You would not be a bad person if you started to get them like confused in your head. Like, wait, who is who? So that that profile also helps clear that stuff up. Um, but yeah, his father, Michael, who this man was extremely abusive. Um, you know, I think the profile does a good job about clarifying, like, we're not kink shaming. We're talking about abuse. So, right. like, if you wanted to have a, a sex throne, which, you know, is a, a an ornate chair, a.k.a. a throne that has, like, a hole cut out of the seat and a woman's head goes into the hole um, to, you know, give you a blowjob or, or, you know, other stuff. I thought it was set up so that there was a cage underneath it. And so the lady went in the cage. Oh, is that what it is? I pictured yeah. it as her head coming up and her. <laughs> okay. Okay. I see. I see. Uh, yeah. Okay. So whatever, whatever you're, you're doing on the sex throne, um, there's, there's sexy business going on and it would be one thing if it was like totally consent, total consent, both parties agreed to it. The, the lady's having a good time. Michael's having a good time, but the other details in the profile are really revealing because, you know, there's just this long history of alcohol and drug abuse in the family and really terrible abuse and, and rape of women in this family. And army grew up seeing his father do all of that stuff. And again, the profile isn't like, therefore he can't be held accountable for his actions. It's just explaining how rich privileged, usually white men can get away with this shit for generations because they're rich and privileged and no one is stopping them. So it's revealing in that sense too, because, you know, army has gotten, um, some mild backlash recently that, you know, he is a box office bomb usually. And why does he keep getting second and third and fourth chances? Oh, it's because he's a tall, good looking white man from this rich family. But then it turns out, yes, that's all true, but he's also getting away with, abhorrent behavior behind the scenes because of who he is. Yeah. And there, one of the things that is missing in the profile is the, is a further explanation of why the, you know, the line of, of consent and abuse and BDSM, like they don't quite tease out some of the reasons why these things are significant. Like it's not just that there's a, sex throne or he's ordering people around or there's rough sex it's the consent and the negotiation and the sense of trust and respect that seems to not exist and seems to be built into the way this family you know of men operates 
but uh yeah to me one of the most revealing things he says and i've seen this explored in other profiles but not the vanity fair one is when he's talking about elizabeth chambers who's his ex-wife he was doing a some interview and he was talking about how kinky he he quote unquote used to be in bed um you know liking to to be rough and be choked and stuff like that and then he says something and i'm slightly paraphrasing but he's like but i don't do that with my wife because i respect her too much and that's really revealing because it's like you can have respect in a bdsm relationship in fact you should have respect and you definitely need consent but it was revealing that he thought in a bdsm relationship there is no respect well, it it does. They mention the play the quote to Playboy, where he's like, "You get yeah, married." Yeah, but they don't explore it. They just quote him, and it's like right. I see the quote, but I think that's really important because it's like, no, no, you could do that. Like if Elizabeth gave her consent, and like maybe she just wasn't into it, and that's totally fine. But like, had she given her consent? You can absolutely do that with your wife and still respect and love your wife. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the other thing, and again, we've talked a little bit about this. We both got stuck on the fact that when he started dating women in the aftermath of his separation, the first thing that he did was unlo- love bomb and unload all of the tra- yeah, like yeah. his trauma. And like Oof. it clearly lays out the way that he weaponized and, yeah. you know, and manipulated you know, having- women. Having been in relationships like that, it, well, you just kept saying, Meredith, you were like, this is so textbook. And Mm -hmm. I was like, yes, like the love bombing shit. And the love bombing shit, I think, is really important for um, people to understand because ostensibly it seems like something that would happen in a, like, a loving relationship where if you were to go someone and go to someone complaining and saying, man, all he does is buy me like expensive things and tell me how much he loves me every day and text me like 40, 50 times. Like a lot of people would be like, he sounds like he's really doting on you and really loving, like, why is that bad? And the reason it's bad is because they are priming you for when they turn. Mm -hmm. So like, it's a way to control you and manipulate you. Uh, Cults do it a lot too. They, They love bomb, you know? So you feel like, oh, this community is so amazing. These people are so loving. And then the turn happens. But by then you feel so indebted to them that you're like, well, maybe the love will start again. And then it does come back. And then you you get addicted to that sort of roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The like once you when you remove it, actually, suddenly the sudden sense of confusion and yes. being wrong footed and it's meant to disorient you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it's part of isolating you. And, you know, it, this is all like textbook abusive relationship stuff, like, you know, cutting you off from your family and stuff like that. So you have no support system. Um, so you feel totally reliant on this person and they become like your drug, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And we also both said that, oh my God, his ex-wife needs to get off that island. Fucking island. I'm like genuinely scared for her because like, again, you know, she's just like with this, I don't know if his parents are with her. I don't know what's going on, but I'm just like, Elizabeth, like, it seems like she's so isolated with the kids there that, yeah, I am concerned. It just makes you wonder, since it was definitely a haven for the family when they were doing tax shelter stuff and setting up a bit of a, like, rich person getaway, 
it doesn't really feel like she's living independently in a in a, a form that is super safe given everything that's come out. Well, I but- did wonder about that because like I follow Elizabeth on Instagram and she owns a bakery, but I like, I'm sort of like, how's the bakery doing? So yeah, she might be just completely financially reliant on them, which is again, another way that, you know, abusers, um, manipulate reality to keep their victims reliant on them. Right. Yeah. Like if she can't afford to live on her own, but anyway, profile's great. I highly recommend it. Do go read it. I also wanted to ask you, Meredith, while we're still in the pop culture section, did you watch the Harry and Meghan interview? I sure did. I admit I didn't watch it until after it aired because I followed it on Twitter. I paid very close attention, but oh my God, that was deeply cathartic. So uh, I have so many thoughts because I feel like we have a theme going right now of abuse and control you know, abuse in a manipulative relationship. Obviously, uh, what Megan and Harry went through was also an abusive, manipulative relationship, plus racism, which adds a whole other extremely toxic element. Um, I have to say, though, like, obviously, we'll, we'll get into the interview and also some of the responses to the interview. I have to talk about Prince William and Piers Morgan, obviously. Of course. But I have to give a lot of credit to Meghan and Harry because the royal family is coming at them Mm -hmm. with every, like, guns blazing. Like, every power they have, whether it's through the media or or the firm, as they call uh, (laughs) their apparatus. But, um... I think they're doing a really good job playing offense right now. I think so too. And, you know, we can, we should lay out as we're getting into this, that obviously this is not, you know, these people are still doing very well. Yes. They're living they're off. Fine. Of their, like, I mean, they're fine. But it also like, let's just, it's like, we live in a messed up like system. This stuff exists. These people, yes, they're doing very well, but they've clearly gone through something very traumatic and they're talking about it in a way that's, uh, that will genuinely help people. And yeah, and I think it's possible to say these are two incredibly privileged, still very rich people who, yes, you're right, ultimately will be fine. But at the same time, to not diminish what Megan went through and the horrific racist attacks against her and how she became suicidal, which, by the way, anybody questioning, that someone is quote unquote legitimately suicidal. Here's the thing. I, if someone comes to me and they just tell me I've, I've had suicidal thoughts. I just believe them reflexively. Cause in my mind, it costs me nothing to believe them. Right. But if I don't believe them, it costs them everything. So If I reject them, if I say you're exaggerating, if I'm like abusive to them and I send them away, who knows what might happen? So why would you not just automatically like to go to someone and say, I feel suicidal is an incredibly vulnerable thing to do. And and Megan and Harry talked about in the interview how they didn't want to do that because they were embarrassed. They didn't want to shame their family. It's 
it takes enormous strength for someone to say those words out loud. So by the time they say it, it has escalated to the point where they no longer feel enough shame to ask for help, which is like emergency level, especially if you are in the British royal family, right? <laughs> because yeah. like you're supposed to keep your feelings on lockdown. So well, if someone they- is like, I need help. Like Diana, Diana was like, I need help. She needed fucking help and no one helped her. And and it, they made it very clear that the institution and like members of the family, but also, you know, any sort of staffers that were allowed, like said, you know, we this would make us look bad. Right. And it's all about idea. image. It's all about preserving the image of the institution, which, yeah. by the way, I maybe I need to say this. I'm sure you all know I feel this way. Fuck the institution. The institution is nothing but a antiquated racist fossil that absolutely needs to go. I it's bullshit whenever they're like, but tourism, it's like people still go to Paris, you know, (laughs) getting rid of the Royals isn't going to like make people not want to go to London, like convert the palace into a fucking museum. People will still come, you know? Um, you don't get to like hang out with the queen when you go to London. Is that what people think that you could just like sit in a room with the queen? You can't, you can't get anywhere near her. You can't see her. Um, so that's bullshit, but yeah. So, oh, also, and maybe this is a generational thing, but this really cracked me up. All of the, the youngins on Twitter who were like, wow, Oprah's really good at interviewing people. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's not her entire bag. I was like, oh, you precious little baby angels. But yes, Oprah's very good at interviewing people. She gets people to say stuff that they probably wouldn't normally say, which is her gift. Um, and but, did not skimp on trying to really push as in a way that felt like it was going to, it got somewhere as opposed to yes. being more confrontational. I know Megan Kelly was like, well, why didn't you ask them who and, and like make them tell you? And I was like, because they said an awful lot. <laughs> also you waste time. Like for people who have never done interviews before, you just move on eventually because if you don't, the entire interview becomes that thing and mm-hmm. you just keep circling and circling and circling and you never get to address anything else. And then you've burnt through your time and then they're like, goodbye. And you're like, fuck. So Oprah did a good job. She did exactly what she was supposed to do. Um, the moment that Meredith obviously is talking about is there was a, a probably the most controversial part of the interview was when um, Megan initially revealed this and then Harry came on. He like joined them uh, like partially through the interview to double down and be like, yeah, that definitely did happen. Where somebody in the royal family, when they learned that Megan was pregnant with Archie, um, expressed concern about what the child's skin color would look like because um, they're super racist. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, you wanted to get to this, we can move straight into the fact that after several days um, and one very mealy mouthed response from the palace itself, Prince William came out and said that we are very much not a racist family. And the honey, simple honey. truth of the matter is, if you have to say those words out loud, you are at best a pretty racist family. <laughs> well, also, it's like, has he read a history book? Has he visited the Commonwealth? You're absolutely a racist family. 
I mean, that's what colonialism is. That's what building empires is. Like y'all went to a bunch of countries with people of color and conquered them um, because you thought they were inferior to white people. The entire British empire, and by the way, the the American empire as well, is built on a history of of racism. So y'all racist. Yes, well, systemic racism is one of those things that really, it's hard to talk about when you need to avoid any important or serious topics in basic discussions. Well, the the flip side of the the William coin, if you will, is I, I saw a bunch of people on Twitter saying different versions of this. But Harry's really a great example. And, you know, again, he's a royal. Fuck the royals, blah, blah, blah. But if we are stuck with the royals... I would prefer to have the Harry version because you could tell in the way he was speaking, it's like, man, this dude has gone to a lot of therapy. Yes, yes. And it's just so interesting to see how much more healthy his thinking is. You know, like I could see him catch himself a few times and how he was phrasing stuff. And anytime he started to like, steer the attention towards himself he would go back to Megan and I was like this dude is making like minute calculations in his head not because he's trying to manipulate the conversation but because he's trying to control toxic thought patterns yeah and that was super interesting yeah and I think like it's also just it's so wild that it's been so long since Princess Diana died that it is a sort of total like world away to think about how young he was when that happened and how much that must have formed his sense of things and yeah imagining like deciding to to make a um, to make a massive change and upend every element of your life because you sudden like it suddenly clicks into place that this system is going to do to this person that you care about yeah. exactly what happened to your mom. Like, like oh, can you shit. imagine? Can you imagine like the pure panic? Like, oh my God, they're gonna kill my wife and my mm-hmm. child. Like, of course, of course he he pulled the pull in case of emergency cord, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was I really was struck by how candid they were in the interview when, when he was talking about like my brother and father are trapped yeah. and they are also depressed. And I was like, damn, like laying yeah. everything out, not just I'm depressed, not just Megan is depressed, but like the whole fucking family is miserable. And I, you know, I, one of the things I thought in it, I know it's very cynical, but I really landed on it is that even if, All of these people who hate her and hate them because they've betrayed the monarchy, even if they're right and they are terrible people and all kinds of they did all kinds of awful, disrespectful stuff. And so everybody is across the board terrible. This was fascinating and masterfully done and great. TV. I mean, like, if within the spectacle universe where we're literally watching, like, Princess Diana and Prince Charles on the crown and then seeing all this stuff unfold, it was perfectly, you know, perfectly put together. And I, uh, that in itself is one of the reasons why it was so massively watched and has caused such a huge splash and people can't stop talking about it. Yeah. And, 
Anybody who thinks that Megan's exaggerating, by the way, I, again, highly recommend you watch the interview because they show just a couple examples of what the press was saying about her and the level of racism is like off the fucking charts. And I think she does a really good job of explaining why that's a different level of harassment than not that what happened to someone like Princess Diana wasn't serious. It was incredibly serious. But when you add that extra toxic element of racism, it's like, oh, and she, you know, was like, I got more death threats because of course, because racism is a different level of threat than your standard harassment, if you will. Both are bad, but she is in no way exaggerating I thought she came across as very sincere. I know there's some people who still like, you know, misogyny and and racism runs deep. So there's still lots of people who were like, she's manipulative, blah, 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 blah. whatever. I believe her. I, I believe her to be sincere. I hope they'll be okay. I hope people will leave them alone. Um, but let's talk about Piers Morgan. So... He got very heated on Tuesday on a Good Morning Britain. He stormed off the set during an argument with uh, his co-host Alex uh, Bressford. I don't know how you pronounce their name. During a conversation about Meghan and Harry's interview. Um, so Alex accused Morgan of criticizing Markle so much because she ended her friendship with him. After she met Prince Harry. Now, some people have speculated that maybe Piers wanted something more than a friendship. I cannot speak to that. But he took it very personally when Meghan didn't want to be his friend anymore after she met Prince Harry. So he storms off set. Um, he later returned to his seat temporarily, but ITV announced later in the day that he had decided to leave for good. So he resigned (laughs) (laughs) because they brought up that Megan didn't want to be his friend anymore. He got so, you know, like you do in a normal friendship when somebody brings that you quit your job, um, because it was just a friendship. Mm -hmm. Because somebody said, you know what? It seems like maybe you're not being... Uh, clear-eyed about this and there's an awful lot of vitriol in here is it because you feel personally rejected how dare you (sighs) that's so wrong i'm quitting my job and it's like pierce okay um so before we get into bad news let's do one recommendation each um just because we've we've gone pretty long guys i can't recommend it highly enough y'all gotta go watch Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar starring Kristen Wiig, Annie Mumolo, and Jamie Dornan. I knew of course Kristen and Annie were in it because they wrote the dang thing and they're their comedy writing partners. I was legit surprised Jamie Dornan is in it uh, for, for y'all 50 Shades of Grey heads out there. Um, and also, what was the Gillian Anderson one? Uh, the Fall. The Fall. Oh, my God. That's such a good show, you guys. Um, Gillian and Jamie are so good in it. Um, but 
this is obviously very different for for Jamie Dornan. It's a it's a comedy um, slash partial musical slash. I've seen this movie described as like it could have easily been a Muppet movie, and <laughs> that's a hundred percent correct. It is so off the wall silly. But I was texting Charles the other day because I was like, you absolutely have to watch this. It's so joyful. I felt like my mood improving watching it. And I loved it so much. I watched it twice in 24 hours. I'm definitely going to buy it when I can. It was just so wonderful to watch a very good comedy um, because we don't get a lot of very good comedies. The last one I watched was um, Palm Springs, which was great. But... Uh, it's been a minute since I saw something so w- wonderful and happy. So I, I highly recommend Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Excellent. Um, I, because I don't know when the next time I'll be hosting, but it seems like a good time to jump in. It's the time of year when I recommend you get caught up on who's going to Eurovision. Uh, <gasps> Yay! I, like many, most of the countries have picked theirs and soon we will have some of the biggest, heaviest hitters in from places like Sweden because uh, they are still running their competitions. But I will put in hearty recommendations for Croatia, or yeah, Croatia, Albania, Italy, Cyprus, and Lithuania, uh, with extra emphasis on Lithuania because you probably need a super weird, flashy song named Discotech where the videos <gasps> just full of crazy dancing. I'm obsessed with the band The Roop, R-O-O-P. They're a real band, not just a Eurovision band. Uh, everyone should be listening to them and uh, make it part of whatever they're going to do when getting wild this summer after we get the vaccine. I do love this because I, I weirdly feel like Eurovision and Barb and Star exist in the same universe. Like I could see Barb and Star <laughs> at Eurovision having the time of their lives. So love that as a recommendation. My sweet little angels, it's that time of the show. Let's all hold hands and cry. Here's your bad news. So first in bad news, I wanted to talk about uh, Kirsten Cinema, which, by the way, because I don't watch cable news anymore, I no longer know how to say people's names. <laughs> so I'm like, am I totally butchering that? Who knows? But also, she's a bitch, so who cares? Um, for the the purposes of this episode, her name is uh, Kirsten Cinema. Sorry, suck it if I'm mispronouncing it. Pretty sure you're right. Um, so she is a senator. From Arizona. Um, she is a Democrat. Um, and she blew the fuck up on Twitter the other day because uh, she and a handful of other Democrats voted to kill an amendment that would have added a provision to the COVID relief bill to slowly raise the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, this was one of the major promises the Democratic Party made to voters during the 2020 elections. And um, something that she had advocated before in the past. And there are tweets. That is something that I find so deeply confusing about this whole story. I don't understand her thought process, whatever. So obviously she wasn't the only one to vote against the, the $15 an hour minimum wage, but 
the reason she blew up was there's video of her adding like extreme insult to injury when she appeared to be very gleeful when she cast her no vote, she like practically skips up to the podium and does like a very flagrant like thumbs down yeah. that is so inappropriate and so disrespectful because we're we're talking about people's means of survival. Like that is really what we're talking about when we talk about labor issues. It's like, can people survive? So to so like flippantly hop up to the podium and give like a flirty little thumbs down, like people went nuts on Twitter <laughs> where they were just like, fuck you. Like It's not denying people a living wage and well, not even a living wage, a, a, a slight raise, uh, raising the floor for basic human function. Doing it with sass, like this is not the time to be practicing you're old, like the time you were a member of the Spice Girls. It's not the time, Kirsten. Uh, so she she released this statement where she said, I understand what it's like to face tough choices while working to meet your family's most basic needs. I also know the difference better wages can make, which is why I helped lead Arizona's effort to pass an index minimum wage in 2006 and strongly supported the voter-approved state minimum wage increase in 2016. No person who works full-time should live in poverty. Senators in both parties have shown support for raising the federal minimum wage, and the Senate should hold an open debate uh, and amendment process on raising the minimum wage separate from the COVID-focused reconciliation bill. I'll keep working with colleagues in both parties to ensure Americans can access good-paying jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So it seems like her rationale was, I don't like that it's part of the relief bill. Right. And, you know, that (laughs) we need to have more discussions about this. I think it's an excuse for her to shirk responsibility and also a way I think that she's giving a bit of a fuck you to people that she thinks were not nice enough to her. Because a lot of the decisions and there's I'll see if I can find this piece and you can post it at some point. Um, a lot of her move to the center and the right has weirdly feel, felt connected to her move, like, because she started as a progressive activist. But, you know, this disillusionment with the way these some of these structures led her to start, like, being contrary for contrarianism's sake. And I, I think she's just telling people to, to fuck themselves and be a brat so that she can get yeah well she started this shit with like she wants to keep the filibuster Mm -hmm. um as has obviously joe manchin i feel like sometimes these people do this shit so they feel like they're extra important or relevant like they want to be in the middle so both sides are trying to court them you know um she wrote in an email defending her view that the filibuster is necessary despite the Republican Party's grim commitment to blocking any and all legislation proposed by Democrats from passing. She believes that, quote, debate on bills should be a bipartisan process that takes into account the views of all Americans, not just those of one political party. She continued, regardless of the party in control of the Senate, 
Respecting the opinions of senators from the minority party will result in better common sense legislation. Which My makes position, sense if there was actually, if senators actually represented people like our populations equally. But the idea that somebody's that a minority party member from Wyoming should have the power to torpedo something that is popular with ten times the population of Wyoming, a hundred times. Yeah. Uh, like that's bullshit. That's we just gotta get, we gotta get rid of the Senate. You guys, we gotta get rid of the Senate. <laughs> we really do. We really, we really do. do. Why? Why do states with wildly different populations have the same amount of representatives in the Senate? It makes no sense. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, also, the fact that like any of her achievements, her more like quote unquote liberal achievements, are from like five or six fucking years ago. Mm-hmm. Like. Congratulations. You raised the minimum wage a little bit six years ago. Like, how does that have any bearing on 2021? I also think that it's really, really important to bring up the fact that her press office's first response to people being furious about the vote and the flagrant disrespect it showed to the workers that she was giving the finger to by doing a thumbs down was to accuse, like, was to call sexism to say that people were angry and they were being misogynist by saying like, you just don't like the way that I did this because like, and I thought, fuck you. That is some lean in the wing style bullshit right there. It's a complete straw man. And usually the evidence they find is like tweets. But here's the thing. You can always find misogyny on Twitter because it's fucking Twitter. So of course there were assholes on there who were like, making fun of her outfit and stuff, which is like, who the fuck cares what she's wearing, you know? But like, of course you can find sexist assholes on Twitter, you know, like you can always dig up a handful of really toxic, misogynist, racist tweets because that's always there. So like to completely manipulate the very valid critique of her voting against raising the minimum wage to be like, y'all sexist. It's just like, fuck off. Three sexist weirdos in God knows where tweeting about how, you know, some making some sort of terrible joke is not is is an idiotic reason to claim that you're going to ignore the very real and very loud, very active organizing that has happened in like amongst her progressive like her constituents who want things to change. I mean, she is saying that she doesn't have to listen to people in her state because she's worried somebody's going to be mean to her on Twitter. That's not how this goes. <laughs> right, right. So I also wanted to talk about voter suppression because, as we know, uh, liberals are really good at paying attention to uh, uh, the national presidential election and then completely ignoring politics until the next presidential election. Um, And then meanwhile, we are losing critical races at the state level. Um, Of course, that's me speaking very broadly. There's also people on the left who do like amazing organizing. Stacey Abrams is a great example of that in Georgia. But this next story is about Georgia. And I think it's important that we pay attention to it. Um, Even even post Biden victory, obviously. So on Monday, Georgia's state Senate passed an omnibus bill that would absolutely devastate voting rights um, in the state. 
um, which is saying a lot because Georgia is already known for extreme voter suppression. Mm -hmm. Republicans have been very successful in that state, making it um, oftentimes borderline impossible for people of color and poor people to vote. Um, so the legislation formerly known as Senate Bill 241 would severely restrict mail-in voting, allowing only the elderly people with disabilities and those out of town or observing a religious holiday on election day to receive absentee ballots. Yeah. Poll and workers and other election staff would also be eligible for an absentee ballot, as would people in the military or living overseas. This is just an obvious reaction to the fact that they did everything they could to rig the election in favor of uh, Donald Trump and Republican candidates, and they still lost. So now it's time to whack-a-mole the things that were like the yeah. tactics that were employed. And that's actually something that you can see across the country in the in any state where there was a marked increase in use of vote by mail, absentee, and uh, you know anything that encouraged people to actually get involved those like there are bills that are now set specifically to attack those things so that the democrats and organizers have to engage in creating an entirely new strategy to get around the new things ultimately they think that any dem like any election where a democrat can win in these states where they have already put all of these roadblocks in they that it must be illegitimate and they must stop it they simply don't believe that it electing a Democrat is a legitimate outcome in an, an election anymore. Right. Uh, that that was actually my first thought when it was clear that, you know, Stacey Abrams' efforts had been incredibly successful and um, that the Democrats took the, the Senate in Georgia. Um, my first thought, I was like, man, the Republicans are going to come at this with a hammer. Like, of course, it's going to be immediate revenge um, and they're they're really, really good at voter suppression because they know that's the only way they can win elections now. And because they have spent the last 20 years, probably closer to 30, entrenching their power centers in as many states as possible. So, for example, in Wisconsin, all of the districts are hopelessly gerrymandered in a way that no matter how, you know, something like two thirds of you know, Democrats were popular, got like 67% of the vote in the state in all of these different districts, and they still only have a third of the seats in the state legislature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Might have been they got more than half, but they still have only a third. But the numbers are really undeniable. They've set things up so that no matter, it doesn't matter how many votes you get, there's just going to, there's just not, physically not enough people there to vote a Democrat into power. So they've created a permanent, majority and minority right. and that's happened in many places and it's a huge part of what's going to happen in the next couple of years because state legislatures are going to be using the 20 like the 2020 census to redraw all of our congressional districts for the 2022 election which means that they can further gerrymander districts and with state supreme courts full of conservatives district courts full of conservatives, circuit courts full of conservatives, the Supreme Court full of conservatives, the likelihood of these things get going through and being held up or upheld is very high. Um, right, so which is which is why it's, it's so critical to pay attention to what's happening in your own state and not just, obviously, federal elections. And on a similar note, 
before we get to good news, I wanted to talk about abortion because this is another incredibly important issue that it, it's so important to to keep our eyes on the ball, right? Um, so two weeks ago, South Carolina's Republican Governor Henry uh, McCass, McMaster signed a near total ban on abortions into law, um, which is a first, but certainly not the last uh, abortion ban to pass in 2021. After uh, he signed the bill, the lawmakers and anti-abortion activists gathered around him and they broke into wild applause. Um, obviously, anytime something like this happens, there's going to be immediate legal challenges. Um, you know, the ACLU, Planned Parenthood, were basically like, we will see you in fucking court, which is what they're so good at, you know. Um, and so, but then in Arkansas on Tuesday... Um, they also busted out their insane anti-abortion uh, law, joining South Carolina when the state's Republican governor, uh, Asa Hutchinson, signed his state's even more extreme abortion ban into law. Hutchinson acknowledged in a statement that it is the, the intent of the legislation to set the stage for the Supreme Court overturning, overturning current case law, meaning... Um, he wants Roe v. Wade uh, burnt to the ground. Um, so, yeah, really disconcerting now, especially because the Supreme Court skews so heavily conservative. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously not surprising because this has been like a wet dream for the conservatives for so long. But now they actually have a, a clear path to victory. Yeah. And I have absolutely nothing to add to that because that's just the way things are at the moment and I genuinely don't know how to change it I guess I'll just say support the ACLU and Planned Parenthood because at this point the the courts really are our best defense against this stuff purely because precedent is really really important in the law and in that respect obviously depending on the judges you're talking to but judges really don't like throwing out precedent. So, you know, we, we unfortunately have some conservative zealots on the Supreme Court, but it's not an easy thing to throw out a prior case. Right. So, or it shouldn't be. <laughs> it shouldn't be, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that it won't happen. You know, like, again, this is the best chance conservatives have ever had at it, it happening. Um, and again, abortion very popular among Americans. So it's not like they have the, the will of the American people behind them, but they have stacked the fucking court. Guys, that's enough of the bad news. Here's your good news. Right. Let's start with the fact that Biden signed the 1.9 trillion COVID uh, relief bill with the $1,400 stimulus checks, which, you know, obviously I've criticized on the show because we were promised $2,000 checks. Um, I, I have issues with the bill, but the fact that the Trump administration did everything in their power to stymie, slow down, um, 
sabotage the incoming Biden administration. The fact that they still got this thing passed, not as fast as we wanted, but relatively speedy, I think counts as good news. Faster than I expected, certainly. Mm -hmm. And they got it through without as much watering down as I thought. I was really genuinely concerned it was going to end up being a sort of toothless capitulation to nonsense, much like the, you know, a lot of what happened in the 2009 when dealing with fixing the impacts of the financial crash and, you know, recession. So that was genuinely impressive. At least it's a start. You know, I have to... I'll at least, you know, give some some snaps to basic government competence and recognizing that there was urgency. Yeah, and I should say there are some encouraging seeds that are planted in this. If you follow AOC on Instagram, she made a specific reference to the fact that um, there's there's a provision in the relief bill that has to do with student debt. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously not a full cancellation of student debt, which is what people wanted. But she she put in uh, a little caption like maybe an encouraging thing, a sign of things to come, you know. So she at least seems optimistic that the conversation is moving in the right direction. There's also um, more money for for parents and children in this. There's more funding for mental health care services. There's legitimately good stuff in this bill that I don't want to erase or diminish. And I know there are people who fought very hard for it. So um, I count it as good news. Man, that money is going to be very appreciated by so many people. But at the same time, to see Biden tweet out something like, this will help you pay rent, is like, my dude, you need to have your ear firmer to the ground because People are so far behind on rent at this point. That $1,400, that's not going to get them caught up on rent. We need $2,000 a month, you know? And make it retroactive. Yes. And cancel fucking rent. Yeah. Um, so also in good news, Biden um, had this big press conference where obviously he talked about signing the, the $1.9 billion relief bill, but also... Um, he directed states to make all adults eligible for the COVID vaccine by May 1st, which again, I know like, especially in New York city, it's going to be like months and months and months before everybody gets the vaccine. But I think mentally for so many people, especially because the weather is getting nicer now, it really helped to hear that May 1st date. (laughs) Yes. I think that actually like, Watching, just knowing that there is a plan and a setup that they think this is possible and that they believe it is possible to get these states to do this. I felt like a level of relief. I almost started crying. Oh, well, speaking of, of relief, and I don't think they would mind me talking about it on the show. Both my parents got vaccinated and I fully almost started crying when my mom told me. I was just so relieved, you know. Yeah. And I mean, both of my parents have been vaccinated, which is great. Um, I'm not sure when my sister and I will be able to get it, but obviously May 1st isn't awfully, is it's not that far away. Just the knowing that it's happening 
the shit's getting into people's arms. Yeah, finally, finally having a date, I was like, I can t- even if it ends up being a month or two months after May, just having some kind of date because we had no idea for like a year. It was like, is this going to be like a five year thing? Because I will absolutely go batty if that's the case. Um, I don't know how much longer I would have been able to hold out uh, in terms of not losing my mind without having some sense of what was coming. And what's so wild is I'm way more introverted than you and I am going completely insane. So I'm like, Meredith must just be crawling up the wall. Oh, I am losing my shit. (laughs) It's so beautiful here. I've been outside walking around, trying to do things, trying to be, you know, and like reminding myself, you still have to be safe. You still have to be careful. You still have to wear your mask and blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. All I want to do is I just, it's like I've got ants under my skin. Let me tell you, hinge is popping off right now I am like every time I go for a walk in the morning I listen to podcasts and stuff and then I'll just like glance at my phone on the way back and I have like eight matches and that and that's not a brag or a flex it never happens that's why I'm like people are going crazy right now (laughs) oh yeah people are ready and you know the joke is that this summer will be fuck summer and I oh think my God! Well, did you see the is... tweet that they already busted somebody in a a bar in New York because yeah. yeah. they were hooking up in the bathroom? Like this summer is going to be lit, and I'm just like kind of affectionate about it and nostalgic. Where I'm like, oh, you little fuck bunnies! But at the same time, I'm like, we're not safe yet. Don't do it. You know, like I want I want to be able to have that summer, but we we got to get vaccinated, fam. You know, we can't just go straight back to fucking in bathrooms. Oh my God. But also realizing that I just don't have the physical energy or stamina to, you know, go out to the places where all of the best stuff is going to be happening or deal with, you know, the idiots that are going to be doing, you know, trying to. I'm going to find it, Meredith. I'm going to find the fucking energy. Like, I don't care if I have to do like, like shots before I go out, but like, I, I need to know that I can still have that version of that night. Even if I don't do it like every night during the summer, I need one night like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So also in good news, um, everyone is turning against Andrew Cuomo. So that's really exciting. Um, Nearly all of the Democrats in New York's congressional delegation, including Senators Chuck Schumer and Kirsten Gillibrand, say that Governor Cuomo has lost the ability to govern. This is, I'll say primarily in response to the um, sexual harassment allegations that have been made against him. But let's also remember, uh, covered up the deaths of a bunch of old people (laughs) in uh, retirement homes during the pandemic. So, and also threatened um, politicians who we're saying they were going to reveal the fact that he was covering up these deaths, um, threatened to like politically ruin them. So he's a bully. He's a gross um, sexual predator. And finally, finally, some like top brass Democrats uh, from New York are like, you got to go. <laughs> Which I love. I, oh, and he's like, so he's teaching about, about cancel culture at the same time. Which, by the way, Good job, everybody who mainstreamed the phrase cancel culture to the point 
that now Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo is using the phrase. Yeah, a, a man who is so notoriously a bully that the second that somebody said something was wrong, immediately everyone said, well, yeah, of course, we all know he was an asshole. Like, yeah, it was just like common. It's like, yeah, Andrew Cuomo's a piece of shit. Oh, and then when he held that ridiculous conference call where he's like, this is all happening because I'm a political outsider. Motherfucker, you are the definition of a political insider. You come from a political dynasty. There was an actual, uh, somebody, I saw a tweet, just said, uh, it was a, so when when Cuomo calls himself a polit like not part of the political club, and it's just a picture of Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout laughing riotously. <laughs> <laughs> but like honestly, it's so fucking insulting. It's like, but you know what? It's all part of that delusion of. I tweeted this, you guys. I I'm so self conscious on the show when I repeat my own tweets. I'm like, God, I'm a piece of shit. But I think it's a valid point. This is very much the same thinking of people who come from generational wealth saying, like, I'm self-made. I did it all on my own. It's like you're either a liar or you're fully delusional. And I don't really care which it is. You're wrong. Yeah. And. Yeah, you're just completely right there. And I think that there's the guy has been awful for years and he deserves to not be in office because his policies are bad, not just because he's an asshole who uses his political power to creep out women. He's done bad things that make him an incompetent and corrupt leader. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, the story makes me tremendously sad because when you read the testimonials of the, the women who have come forward with you know, allegations against Cuomo. It just made me think like how many incredibly brilliant, talented women have we lost because they just quit because they're getting harassed on the daily by their boss. And it's bad enough when your boss is like your line supervisor, that's horrible enough. But when he's the fucking governor, like how awful you know and like how many women do we lose every day because they're it's just easier to be like i'm out yeah and i i completely understand why people do that i mean this yeah. is just another way um it's the you know and and i think a really common response to that is well but you have to be tough to you know work at the top levels of anything and i say fuck you that can be true, but nobody should like her, like dealing with harassment on a daily basis or on a, even a consistent basis, even an inconsistent basis, dealing with a toxic work environment should not be baked into the cost of being a successful professional. Like, no, you have to put up with abuse. No, you shouldn't have to. And the reason I feel encouraged by this response is I think it is highly significant that his fellow Democrats are calling for him to resign during a time when they could pretty easily use the excuse of the pandemic to be like, well, we need Cuomo's great leadership at this moment in time, even though that's bullshit, obviously, like mm -hmm. literally all he's done is cause his top health officials to resign in protest yeah. because he would not listen to their scientific um, and sage wise advice 
when they were like, do not reopen the city. It will spread this virus. He just fucking fully ignored them because capitalism. We don't need Cuomo ever, but especially not now. But they could have easily used that as an excuse. And they're not. Mm-hmm. Feels like a, a pivotal moment in our culture where it's like, oh, Maybe they're taking this stuff more seriously. Now, maybe they're only taking it more seriously because it is happening at the same time that he covered up the deaths of so many um, elderly people. Like, that one-two punch is pretty devastating. But, you know, regardless, it's like these women, I feel like, are being heard. Yeah, and I I think that, I mean, frankly, I think it's a good thing that it's happening at the same time. Because... Because of how powerful he has become and the level of, like, abuse and manipulation that his top deputies employ, I think that without the two of them together, there's a good chance that both of these stories would not have ended up damaging him. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Because the nursing home stuff was a big deal for a lot of people, but it did not seem to be getting the kind of traction that actually was going to lead to accountability and I don't, I don't think that uh, Ron Kim, uh, a city council member from Queens, who's been at the receiving end of a lot of terrible behavior from Cuomo, but also is a really wonderful progressive community leader, uh, I think it would have been treated like a local story. I and- do think it was a scale issue. I just remember that report that came out when Letitia uh, James was like, they underreported deaths by 50%. Yeah. I, I just remember people were like, 50%? <laughs> like, it was not, I mean, not that it, it's okay to cover up any of the COVID deaths, but the fact that it was a huge number, people were like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and I just think that we have gotten so, we got so used to bullying and people doing horrible things with that kind of attitude during Trump years that our desperation to get back to a sense of normalcy might have led people to kind of, let it pass right. and let it be an issue for the communities that were really worst affected. Um, and frankly, I guess I'm not even a, that worried about trying to come up with the counterfactuals of like, would this have happened? Or how did this is like, what is this? How does this affect this? Because he needs to have accountability and mm-hmm. for both things. And both things are a result of the fact that he is a lumbering ape of a bully. <laughs> yeah, he's the fucking worst and he needs to go. And it seems like more and more people are, are getting serious about asking him or demanding. He resigns. So bye, bitch, you gotta go. We hate you. Bye-bye, Andrew Cuomo. Guys, that's all for today. Please follow Meredith on Twitter at Meredith L. Clark. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a fan of the show, please go to patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny for as little as $5 a month. You get to skip the line, send those beautiful recommendations and little stories and little updates about how you're doing or lighttreason.news to keep us going. I so appreciate all the support. I hope you're doing well. Hashtag lighttreasonpod with anything. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And while you're at it, You know what? Stay inside and cause a little trouble.